Well, good afternoon and welcome to Let's Talk, The Pastor is In. I'm program host Kip Allen. Let's Talk's a program for the Christian layman, you know, the Lutheran who believes but has questions. And boy, does that mean, that, that's, that program means it's right for me. There's a lot I don't understand. You know, it's not necessarily soul-shaking. It might just be something that's been in the back of my mind. And rather than getting into a deep chapter and verse theological discussion, you know, a casual front porch style talk of the pastor's often the best way to understand it. And that's what this program's all about. Today's guest is Bill Swirlow of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights, California. Now I've got my questions, and I'm sure you have yours. You can send the questions by email anytime to letstalk at kfuo.org or call in during the program. If you're in the St. Louis area, including Metro East, that's area code 314 8210850 Or anywhere in North America, toll free at... 1-800-730-2727. Okay, so we've got California on the line. How's it going, Bill? It's hotter than Hades here. Oh, we had a horrible one yesterday. We hit almost 100. We hit almost 100, not here in the Midwest when we say 100. We don't know if we're talking about the temperature, humidity, or both. Yeah, we we're um, we're gonna we're gonna break probably 112. Wow. Maybe maybe 115 today. Wow. Oh, I remember that from the times when I lived in Palm Springs. I mean, so. yeah, yeah. This is this is desert weather come to the coast. Uh, I, I guess meteorologically, what this is about is that high that gave you all that hot weather, kind of went the opposite direction. It kind of took a detour uh, to the west and um, parked itself somewhere over Arizona, or New Mexico, or something. But it's it's basically caused uh, everything just to come to a grinding halt here. And so the nor- our normal wind pattern is off the ocean, so yep. that moderates everything. But this is an onshore flow, okay. and that means even the beaches are scorching hot. It's just really miserable out here. Well, that's it's. I, I remember a couple of times when I was in Palm Springs, we actually hit over 120. Oh yeah, no the the desert is like that, but it's unusual. We live in a kind of a weird uh, microclimate that's part coastal, part inland, and so uh, there are times when we get the marine layer that that delightful gray layer of clouds that sits out over the ocean. We'll get that, and we call that uh, May gray or June gloom, and and that just that just makes everything really nice and cool and and wonderful. But when that recedes, when that burns off and and it goes back out to sea, uh, we get to be inland, and that that means it's tough to grow things because uh, the cool season plants don't like the heat, the warm season plants don't like the gray, and so you're always kind of juggling between the two. So you're you're stuck betwixt and between. We are, we are. It's a, it's a challenging place. I'm not a heat person. You, I, I am so perfectly dialed in when it, it could be like a constant 65 degrees, and I would be so happy. I, that, that is my ideal working temperature. You're living in the wrong state for that. I know that painfully. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'm reminded of that every morning, like this morning, when it's already 90 degrees, and I haven't had my morning cup of coffee yet. I remember uh, first uh, when I first moved to Palm Springs. It was down from Ojai, which is a much better climate than Palm Springs. Yeah, but that still gets hot there because that's surrounded by mountains. 
Uh, it can, but it's actually relatively moderated because we've got that east-west valley, and so we can ah, yeah. generally get prevailing winds. And I, I know what you're talking about with the uh, with the, uh, the marine layer. We used to get just the fringes of it. But when I, when I first moved down to Palm Springs, I guess that was back in 96, I remember taking my dog out for a walk. It was late at night, about midnight, and the temperature was 90-some-odd degrees. And the dog doesn't want to go for a walk. That, that's, that, that's, how, that's how you know. It's so hot, my dog doesn't want to go out for a walk. You know? it, it got like that. I, I had this German Shepherd by the name of Conrad. and uh, <laughs> That's a good name for a German Shepherd. Yeah, Conrad von Weissewasser. Oh, my goodness. Okay. Be, yeah, because we lived on white water. So it was yeah, yeah. No, I, I... And uh, when it was time to go out, uh, we had like three different doors to the outside. And we go check out each one. <laughs> Just to yeah. see. Maybe this would lead into the winter. <laughs> right, right. One of these got to be cool. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, we're bad. You know, I've lived here 26 years, same place, same spot. And uh, the, every summer it gets hotter and hotter and hotter. You know, and I don't care what, you know, you think politically about climate change, warming, all this kind of stuff. All I can say is every year it's just we're hitting consistently over 110, which is very unusual. It used to be unheard of here. Yeah. And uh, and more more of the summer is occupied with that. It used to be when I moved here in the early 90s, you'd get maybe two on a very hot, very hot season, maybe three weeks in late August, early September that might go this hot. But that was about it. Now it's just on again, off again all summer long. It's, re it's really, really rough. And something I learned is that the older you get, the less tolerant you are to eat. Well, I tend to run cold. Uh, you know, my my wife's uh, my wife can't get get cool enough now, and uh, she's running fans, and I'm shivering. I've got my robe on. I'm actually like like I say, I like the ambient temperature to be cooler, but I really don't mind the heat in that sense. I'm just not a hot weather person. It's just it just it takes everything out of me. Well, there's not too much we can do about it until September. move move just move. You know that's that's. <laughs> So you, what, do you have a good Fourth? We're in the Fourth. We're in the throes of the, the extended Fourth of July holiday. Mm -hmm. Some people are still on holiday. Oh yeah, we got a. As I said, we we've got a couple of our staffers out on holiday right now. Yeah, so you're kind of shorthanded, and you're it, doing everything over there, and you're running the Senate basically, as I understand I it. Am, you're from from I the am. control Absolutely from the control true. booth of KFUO. You're running the entire Missouri Senate, so that's kind of cool. Yeah, I think so. I think maybe uh, President Harrison isn't aware that I'm doing it, but. Nah. Well, I think everybody should take a stint. I, I've often said that for laymen who are very critical of, of sermons and preaching, I think they all ought to put on the bathrobe and get up there and do, do the thing, you know, once or twice just to get a feel for what it's like, and they will never criticize anything again. That is so true. So I think everybody who's got something to say about, you know, synodical president or synodical bureaucracy, they ought to just kind of spend a week, you know, doing that and just see how it goes. Maybe, maybe, maybe you'll look at it through more sympathetic eyes. <laughs> Well, I was at the uh, Triennial Convention two years ago. And believe me, I would not want to have any kind of a leadership role in that. Oh no, no, no! And 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 a, a convention is by definition that's that's like chummed shark-infested waters. Mm -hmm. You know, there's there's blood, there's dead fish in there, and I mean, they're just they're just they're looking, they're waiting for something to blow up. There's there's like it's it's a really unhealthy environment, and I think that's what happens when you run a church in a sort of a democracy kind of way. Because democracy is always messy, it's polarized, it, it, you know, if we think that the political climate today is bad, go back to like the founding fathers. <laughs> you know, they were fighting duels with pistols. The, these guys were insane. 
and and you know when you look at some of the bar tabs that they rang up for some of these uh, these gatherings that they had, they weren't exactly teetotalers on top of it. But you know, politics and democracy is messy because it's adversarial. You know, and and so whenever you have an adversarial kind of situation, tensions rise, uh, ad hominems go up, anger, all the all the old Adam stuff really comes to the fore. Well, you're kind of doing an old Adam stuff right now in this period in our history. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now I remember, you know, I I, I am old enough to to uh, remember the sixties. Actually, as they say, you know, if you remember the sixties, you weren't there, but. Uh, <laughs> Where did I say? I saw a meme on Facebook that said something about in the '90s. Uh, you know, I, I'm thankful for growing up in the '90s. Lots of memories and and nothing on record. You know, because every everything is now immortalized uh, on the internet. Everything, Boy, every stupid, every stupid thing you ever did, it's 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 up there. Um, and so I like to come back with. Uh, I'm glad I grew up in the '70s. Uh, nothing on record and no memories either. We just <laughs> wait. We don't remember the entire thing. But but I remember. You know, I remember the Watts riots. I remembered. Oh yeah. King's assassination. I remember yep. Kennedy's assassination. Both the Kennedys, uh, and of course the uh, the uh, Vietnam War. Yes. And there were some very serious divisions in the country right then. You know, Kent State, look at it. American troops firing on American students. You know, I had a moment. I, I was at my district convention, and this was last week, uh, Pacific Southwest District, a district you are familiar with, I, I believe. And, uh, and there was a guy there in camis. Now, I don't know who he was, but he was, I think he was doing one of the tables. Yeah, they have the vendor tables and all the, all the groups that are mm -hmm. there. And, and, but he was, he was in camis, he's a military guy. And I have great respect for the military. I always, you know, honor them, thank them, like to engage them in conversation. So I've got nothing, I'm, I'm not, there's no anti military thing, but a uh, friend of mine, <clears throat> Friend of mine and I, uh, he's a little bit older than than me, but but we go back to that Vietnam War era, and and you know I had to admit I said you know the sight of military people makes me uneasy, and and I do have those memories of the campus riots of Kent State of all of that you know it's it was a different it was a different kind of polarity back then. And uh, and that still colors it today. So as I say, I'm very grateful for their service. I honor them. We pray for them every Sunday. Um, I go out of my way to thank uh, service people, veterans or current people currently serving for their service of country. But there's a real unease uh, that I a visceral unease that I have around the military, and and it goes back to that era. Well, yeah, you know, the, the founding fathers uh, really were very much against a standing national army. Well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. In, until you got to defend your country, uh, <laughs> yeah. they were they were an odd bunch. Um, the, the founding fathers, we always speak of them almost in in uh, like we do the saints, you know. The, and typical of of any kind of historic thing, these these figures grow larger with the retelling, the mythology. Uh, expands and and you get a whole what we call in church circles a whole hagiography, uh, and sometimes a hagiolatry, uh, hagios being saints, you know, a whole cult of saints, and we have it with the country too. We we idolize these guys, uh, and they were a real mixed bag. I, I I sometimes wonder how we would react to them if we parachuted them into today's political world, oh, political be, climate. I, I don't think they'd survive it. I think they'd go back to France. Uh, you, you know, I mean, most of them. Ben Franklin was was um, 
He, he was, was a dirty a, old man. Well, he was a dirty old man, that's true. But but he was the son of the Enlightenment. Yeah. It was very Enlightenment. Uh, these guys drunk deeply of uh, the French Revolution, of the Enlightenment, uh, John Locke in particular. Uh, they were also English deists. Uh, they weren't, for the most part, they weren't Christian. They were just deists. Uh, our, a lot of our founding documents reflect that, you know, this idea of a providential God. Uh, you know, that's a, that's a deist God. It's not the not the Christian expression of God by any stretch. Some were Christians, but but most weren't. And uh, most of them, a lot of them were wealthy. They're landed, owned slaves. You know the whole deal. And mm -hmm. so you have a, a real mixed bag of things going on with the founding fathers and the founding of this country too. That uh, uh, kind of defies the popular mythology sometimes. <laughs> But still, you know, you look at it from a historical concept, uh, from a historical perspective, I mean, and it truly was a revolution, not just a not just militarily, but politically. There are some concepts that had never been floated before in the world. Uh, the concept of the of the uh, popular sovereignty, the concept that, uh, you know, every man a king, every uh, the concept, well, for the fact that that they were so adamant about there being no official state religion. Yeah, but that was only to to get the the states to buy in, though. Remember that there was oh, no yeah. official federal religion, but almost every state, except I believe Rhode Island, where you were just entrusted to Providence, literally. Uh, but every state had its own official religion. Some you couldn't vote unless you were a member in good standing of the church. Mm -hmm. But the 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 uh, anti-disestablishmentarianism clause. There's a word that just rolls off the tongue, right? Uh, of the First Amendment. Was a buy in that word. It was a buy-in because because they they were afraid that the states weren't going to buy into this, and so there's all kinds of guarantees laid out that the federal government was not going to try to unify the country around a single religion. But every state was free to have its own religion and conduct its own business the way it saw fit. But that certainly uh, was an alien concept, say, to European thought. Well, uh, you know, bear in mind that the at least the religious people that came over here were the misfits, by and large. They, they were the ones who either got thrown out of their official uh, state religion or were shown the door with a foot to the rear end or just left with the idealistic notion that they could reboot in a new land and practice their religion the way they saw fit. A lot of people came over on those premises. So yeah, but, here, here we are. <laughs> well, you know, it had one, I think, very positive effect. Well, I, I'm going to say the, the the fact that so many of the original settlers here were religious uh, were religious refugees, if you will. Uh, one thing that really helped in establishing a democracy uh, was the fact that most of them could read. Well, yeah, and and democracy uh, presupposes a literate society. Yeah. And we were, because certainly compared to Europe, we were literate. Our people had to read to read the Bible. It was part of their faith. And well, so, even just read some of those founding documents. They are they are quite well written, and they're written at a high level. They they, they are not the dumbed down English that you and I are accustomed to today. But they're really written at a very high level, with the presumption that people were going to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest these things. They were, and again, that's, that's the concept of, uh, of how the democracy, I think, evolved in the country. Well, you know, where the people would sit down, they would discuss these issues. I, I don't think it's any, uh, any uh, coincidence that a good deal of the initial debate 
leading up to the revolution took place in uh, taverns. Well, as as uh, Lutherans all know, that is the common place to engage in meaningful discussion. Absolutely. You know, Luther debated Swingley at, at, at a, in a tavern, too. So, uh, and, and that is a gathering place. You know, I think we have to understand that, too, in, in the role of community. Communities have gathering places. And uh, these are not uh, these are not like the local taverns we think of in some of our big cities, you know, where the men just kind of hid out from their wives and family for an extra half hour before they came <laughs> home. That's like a buffer zone between work and home. You know, you just kind of sat there and had a drink, watched TV and you know, everybody. Nobody said anything because they all knew, you know, but but these were these were vigorous places of community gathering. This this is where this is where this was the equivalent of in in biblical it, um, in biblical Israel, the the elders at the city gate, you yes. know, just sitting around doing nothing, and and then you come to them with your your problems, and they debate it, and and you come you tap into this local wisdom. This is where you tapped into the local wisdom. Well, as as you know, Bill, I have been known to brew beer on occasion. You've mentioned this. I have mentioned that, and I also had studied the history of beer, which is quite fascinating. And since you asked. During the American Revolution, or actually right, growing, uh, right leading up to it, uh, there were some very interesting developments uh, in brewing and in patriotism and in the Tories. Uh, for example, everybody knows about the Boston Tea Party, right, in 1773? Absolutely, absolutely. And, and, you know, I'm not sure I'd start a war over it. Yeah, now that you mention that, you know, if the Founding Fathers would take one look at our tax code today, I think they'd have another revolution. Oh, absolutely. Uh, this is, you know, what we were paying in tariffs is nothing compared to what we pay today. <laughs> but did you know that in 1770 we almost had a Philadelphia keg party? <laughs> Philly's a good party town, too. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, what had happened was is that the, uh, the crown, you know, the, uh, most of the beer back then was imported from England. Because uh, hops did not grow well in in New England, and frankly, neither was the barley very good over here, and so the beer was mostly imported from England, and the uh, the crown put a tax on it, and so what had happened was is that the American breweries, the American beer was untaxed. It wasn't very good beer, but there was a proposal back in 1770 among some some of the people who later became the founding fathers to boycott. All the all the Tory beer, you know, just throw it in the river. Of course, Sainter heads uh, kept said, you know, yeah, throw tea away, not beer. Come on, yeah, yeah, yeah. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> the only thing worse would have been rum if they start seventeen seventy. If, if they start start throwing rum and whiskey over, that's it. That's it. <laughs> We're done here. Well, uh, and then and in the days, you know, leading right up to before the revolution, uh, there were. The taverns, really, as you pointed out, were the gathering places for the communities. And sure. uh, there were the the uh, taverns that had American beers were, were, were frequented by the patriots and the ones that had the British beers by the Tories, by the loyalists. And it w they really became political meeting places for the two sides. Exactly, sure. And they probably wouldn't serve the other side, so we have kind of a reenactment of the Red Hen incident right there. Oh, yeah. I'm sure it happened. I'm sure it happened. Oh, yeah. Well, Except they, they settled the matter with pistols at about, what, 50 <laughs> paces or so? Have you ever seen the movie The, uh, the Patriot? Have not. Oh, there is this marvelous... That's, that's the uniform answer to most times when I'm asked the question, have you seen the movie? Okay, ah. I just know. Yeah. Well, there is a scene where... where um, uh, where Mel Gibson and his uh, 
partner from the French are trying to recruit uh, people for the militia. And they walk into this really bad dive, this bad bar. And they're trying to decide, gee, is this where we can get militia people who will fight? And Gibson says, watch this. And he says, God bless King George. <laughs> That'll do it. Yeah. And he ran out the door. You see all these knives come out. <laughs> yeah. Thrown that, out the door. Marvelous, do marvelous scene. But yeah, that, that was very much what had happened back then. And, I, you know, it, are we seeing it now? Seeing what? That kind of division now. No, there's no vision. There's just there's there's just simply the 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 politics of ideology is is all it is, I mean, and and that's that's unfortunate because we've kind of ceased to think and we just simply react now. And not to say they weren't reactionary, but they really kind of thought even even our Declaration of Independence talks uh, in very rational rationalistic Enlightenment terms that uh, when you do this kind of thing. When you institute new government, when you, you you are obligated both to God and to society to explain your actions, you know, you, you present your case. The Declaration of Independence is really a presentation of the colony's case against the King of England. And, uh, it, you know, so you, you don't just kind of go and 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 make up a sign and you know go and and march in the center of town you you uh you hash through the issues and you make a case for what you're doing and that's you're right that's that's what the the declaration did and i think it uh uh intentionally or not laid out an excellent argument for the two kingdom uh, belief that we have well, yeah, some would say that. I really think it's it's just parked it's parked in the parking space of John Locke and his tre two treatises on government. Um, you can see it; it's transparent um, in the Declaration of Independence, where they talk about to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That's a that's a, a Locke principle that government exists by the consent of those who are governed. I, I would say it's not biblical. In, 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 in at least the way the Bible presents ruling authorities, these, these, come, these are from God, so that Paul and Peter both could basically say, you know, treat the emperor as Lord and, and to obey the government as, as God's minister. Um, it was the Enlightenment that, that worked out the theory that the government, the authority of government, basically arises from the common consent of the government so that the actual authority of government resides with the individual citizens. Curiously, it's the same thing as, as, as our ecclesiology. That would be like a too deep a discussion for your show. <laughs> how 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 yeah, influence how how the Missouri Synod on 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 the the uh, the Enlightenment principles of American democracy? A lot of people have kind of like kicked that around, but this idea that the authority resides with the individual and that we, as a gathered people, as a community, uh, give up a certain amount of those rights to the government to a governing authority for the common good. Uh, but that's that's the principle that they're working with in in uh, in the Declaration of Independence. Well, maybe that's one of the big differences between us and the Catholics is that you know the Catholics have that 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 central authority that, according to their doctrine, is indeed appointed by God. We don't have that. 
Well, you know, that's an interesting point because because the papacy is much more of a monarchy. You know, you might make a very compelling case that the 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 I won't say Protestant doctrine because it's not uniquely Protestant, but but the Reformation turning its light on the priesthood of believers uh, kind of sets the stage for this sort of thinking. In other words, uh, when you're not looking to some sort of sovereign king appointed by God himself, i.e. the pope or the king, take your pick, uh, but instead you see the authority of the church or, or earthly authority uh, residing uh, with the individual believer before God, that is the priesthood of believers, that totally changes how you view uh, government, whether it be church government or civil government. It does to a large extent, but I look at uh, one of the arguments I have with uh, with friends of mine who uh, I, I refer to them as cafeteria Christians uh, is when you join a church, whether it's Missouri Senate or what have you, you join it. You're voluntarily a member of it, and you either accept the doctrine, the teachings, or not. And I have... Uh, Catholic friends, for example, who support uh, who support abortion, even though the church preaches against it, and but they they are still comfortable with it. I I I, I have a problem with that kind of a concept. You know, I'm, I'm Lutheran. I sure I was born into the church. I really never thought about joining another another church, but I accept it. Well, yeah, I think there's a problem. I, I, I take a step back with that because we have cafeteria Lutherans, too. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, there's cafeteria anything because the, the, the individual does not uh, give up his or her right to a brain when he, when he joins a community. So there gonna be, there's going to be some thinking going on. I think a lot of people who are Christian who are maybe not entirely off on one particular side or the other on, say, the abortion issue, um, it's be, it's not it's not their personal choice. In other words, take that Catholic you're talking about. They're not going to have an abortion in all likelihood. They will view it as a moral wrong for them. But they're they're backing away from this notion that I get to dictate that to everybody around me. In other words, that that decision, that moral decision, is really an individual decision to make. I'm I'm willing to guess that is behind a lot of otherwise Christian or good Catholic people uh, who are not going to come down on the absolute side on abortion. If, if it applies to them personally, that's one thing, but I think they're hesitating to, to make a blanket statement regarding everybody and their choices. I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying that's how they think. Well, we'll discuss this on the other side here. we got to take a break at the bottom of the hour, but we got a lot going on, Bill. There's a lot more to talk about. On issues, etc., we'll have Dr. Bradley Berzer compare and contrast the American Revolution with the French Revolution. 
We'll discuss the Mass with Pastor Paul McCain. We'll have Pastor Will Whedon talk about the mystical union. And we'll visit with Dr. Alfonso Espinosa, author of our book of the month, Faith That Sees Through the Culture. Issues Etc., live weekday afternoons from 3 to 5 on KFUO. My name is Bobby. I'm a veteran and lost my leg to a roadside bomb. My victory was going from a wheelchair to becoming a weightlifting champion. I'm Sam. I'm a veteran. My victory was finding a career that I could be proud of. At DAV, we're on a mission, helping veterans of all generations get the benefits they've earned. I'm Cece. My victory was finishing my education. When America's veterans win, we all win. Help us support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. Hi, this is Pastor Mark Azil, the LCMS Director of Campus Ministry and the Chancellor of LCMSU, inviting you to join us right here on Wednesdays at 2 p.m. in the Student Union. If you can't make it, Student Union is always available as a podcast at kfuo.org. Learn more about LCMSU at lcmsu.org. And remember, college is tough. You need Jesus. We'll help. Wednesday afternoon at 2 on KFUO. You hear our voices every day as we speak the gospel, share the latest news, or for insightful and sometimes entertaining talk. Why not share your voice with us and send us your feedback, suggestions, and questions? Leave your comment at 314-996-1542. Be sure to follow us on social media, too, so you can like, comment, and share your favorite posts. Drop an email to kfuo at kfuo.org or send a snail mail letter to Worldwide KFUO, 1333 South Kirkwood Road, St. Louis, Missouri, 63122. Jonathan Edwards, a congregational minister, was one of the Great Awakening's most prominent preachers. His sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, was preached on July 8, 1741. He received his master's degree from Yale in 1722, then apprenticed for his grandfather, Solomon Stoddard, a well-known preacher of the day. In 1729, Edwards became the sole preacher of his Massachusetts congregation. A contemporary claimed Edwards began his day at 4 a.m. and then studied 13 hours a day. One observer of his preaching noted, he convinced with overwhelming weight of argument and with such intenseness of feeling. The text of sinners in the hands of an angry God came from Deuteronomy 32:35. Their foot shall slide in due time. His sermon contained vivid biblical imagery, becoming the most famous sermon in American history. Brought to you by Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C. Welcome back to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. I'm program host Kip Allen. My guest today is Pastor Bill Swirla from Hacienda Heights, California. We are talking about the revolution. (laughs) Which one? Which one? What what, what revolution? Well, since we just passed July the 4th, I guess it's ours. Oh, that that one. Yes. Okay. That, that, yeah. So you posed an interesting question. Hmm. Was the revolution sinful? Yeah, that comes up a lot. Uh, pastors like to kick that one around. Okay, you're a pastor. Kick it around. <laughs> Was it sinful? Uh, you know, it's it's hard to. It would be hard to argue against that, on the basis of Romans thirteen and First Peter two, and also on the basis of the small catechism and the fourth commandment. Our Canadian friends always remind us of this. You know, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they were on the other side. <laughs> Actually, now, you know, part of British North America, there, real, there was no Canada for sale. That's, there you go, see, and, and they still pay homage to Her Majesty, and they, they kind of like it. But, you know, 
let's face it, when you got that much water between you, uh, you know, it's largely symbolic at this point. They have their own government, their own parliamentary government. So it's it's today as we we talk, this is largely a symbolic thing and and probably not worth the discussion. But at the time, the American colonies were colonies of the of Great Britain and the Great British Empire. Now, historically, would it have lasted? Probably not. When you look at the trajectory of history and modernization and all of this, this is not going to last. This was metastable to begin with. It's really hard to uh, keep control of colonies across that distance, especially a big pile of water. Although they did India pretty well for a long time, you got to admit. Oh, yeah. Um, but, England, we... but India was so divided with, with ethnic and language groups. See, the thing is, the, the Bible doesn't give you any sort of, like, loopholes, you know, to obey the government, except when they overtax you, or except when they do this or do that or anything else. I'm not sure you can make a case for overthrowing the government on biblical terms. Well, wasn't one of the very first, uh, one of the very first uh, uh, people who, who joined the revolution was a Lutheran pastor? Uh, you're talking about Muhlenberg? Yeah. Yeah, kind of like he, as as the story goes, he preached a sermon and uh, and then uh, peeled off his uh, robes and he had uh, military dress underneath and got his musket and went off uh, to, went off to fight. Um, Swingley, it, yeah, that's really more in the it's really more in the realm of Swingley than it is Luther. Okay, have I'll to explain say. that. Well, Swingley died I'm, in I'm, the. I'm, I'm just a layman here. Swingley, Swingley was the Swiss reformer before Calvin. He was the contemporary of Luther. He's the guy that Luther debated at the Blackboard Tavern uh, over the nature of the Lord's Supper. They tried to come up to come up with some kind of uh, reproachment, uh, and they could agree on almost everything except the nature of the Lord's Supper. Swingley had this odd symbolic notion of the Lord's Supper. Okay, but Swingley died in the battlefield. He took up arms against the papal army. Now, being Swiss, you know why he was ticked off? Because the 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 the, the Pope always took the Swiss his his guards from the Swiss. They had the best soldiers, so they were losing their young men to Rome, and that ticked them off. See, what ticked Luther and company off was taxes, is they were funneling money out of Germany yeah. into Rome, and that really that really got the princes riled up. So that that was the fuel that drove. That that part of the the German Reformation, but the Swiss they were they were conscripting their young men uh, because the the Swiss were good soldiers, and so Swingley was was fighting on behalf of Switzerland. But he took up arms and uh, died and died fittingly in in the battlefield. Well, certainly Luther rejected the the authority of the papacy, so. How he was rejecting, in a sense, what the fourth commandment? Well, y yes and no. You, you, when you look at the when you look at the confessions view of the papacy, it's it's ambivalent. It's it's a it's a both and. Uh, they're willing to accord the pope the status of bishop of Rome and bishop of the Roman churches. They're even willing to concede the episcopal polity, and that is to be under the pope, providing that he does not war against the preaching of the gospel and the right administration of the sacraments. It's a big providing that, okay? And so they did a kind of a, they made a division between things of the papacy that were of God, namely what we would call the office of the ministry, and things that were of man, 
namely that he's the head of the entire church, that he's the head of all Christendom, that he can make rules whenever he wants to, that kind of thing. So they kind of made a distinction, but they didn't like whole hog rebel against the Pope. They they rebelled against what was not Christian of the papacy. Very subtle, uh, but uh, hey, it's typical Lutheran. Okay, we're never we're never black and white. It's always nuanced. It's always paradoxical. Deal with it, <laughs> right? That's the beauty of being Lutheran. It's not a black and white answer. That's why Lutherans really don't fit the current climate today. You know, where everything is red or blue, this or that. It doesn't work. Lutherans are going, well, it depends what you mean and how you define it. And uh, we're, we're, we're a much different breed of cat. Hadn't quite thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I don't hesitate to say the revolution, as it appears on the history books, is probably, according to our understanding of the Fourth Commandment and the nature of governance, sinful. Uh, was that does that mean like we we sort of say do we take it back <laughs> give the country back to england you know do you think they take us no <laughs> and not only that but there's no point in that see it, it and and here's the here's the greater point and this is what's this is what's really scary to some people is god has worked a lot of good and you know there's been a lot of like unintended bad too but but there's a lot of good stuff that has happened because of that can God work through sin? Of course he can. That's the whole nature of he works all things together for good. That's the, that's the, whole, that's the whole point of the all-redeeming sacrifice of Christ, that he's reconciled the world uh, to God. And so this reconciled, it's messy, but uh, it's like Joseph said to his brothers, you meant this for evil, and God has used it for good. You know, you meant to sell me into slavery, now God has used it to save you. And that's God's big na 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 to the whole thing. We think we're making plans, and God says, watch this. <laughs> See, so I don't worry about that. This doesn't keep me up on the 4th of July. Yeah. Well. And it doesn't diminish our liberties, but I'll tell you something. It does make us think repentantly of how we use our liberties. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there, there, is, there is a responsibility that goes with the freedoms and the liberties that we have. And uh, that, that's one of the problems I see today is, uh, for what of another phrase, better phrase, going, calling it the social contract. That and, was Rousseau. And, well, yeah. <laughs> oh, darn, see? you're nailing me on this one. See, there, we're, all, we're all sons of the Enlightenment, I'm telling you. But the social contract, that was it. You had the full authority of governance, but you and your fellow citizens created a social contract and basically entrusted the public exercise of those rights and authorities to the government. But you could take them back again if you needed to. Well, even a, so, but a social contract among people, not just the, the people in the government. Uh, you know, I will debate you on this subject, and you will listen to me, and I, you will tell me, and I will listen to you, and we'll come to a conclusion. And that seems to be thrown out the window nowadays. And, you know, it's, it, it, like with any other contract, it, it's binding on two parties. One party chooses not to, not to follow it. The other person's not bound either. Yeah, that's, that's, see, a, that's a formula for a lot of danger. That's the not-my-president crowd. 
you know, we've, we heard it first with the previous president. I heard a lot of people on the conservative side say, it's not my president. I said, oh, don't say that. This could come around to bite you. And it has. So you've got a lot of people now on the left saying, not my president. And that's the, that's, that's the seeds of anarchy right there. Here's the deal, is that I think democracy, like I, like I said before, and, and our whole system is built on an adversarial kind of system. So think about the court. So you have two two lawyers arguing for and against a position or a person or, you know, he's charged with a crime or you have some kind of civil thing, but you're arguing and, and it's adversarial. You're putting your best argument forward and then a judge or a jury is going to determine who's got the preponderance of evidence on their side, right? Mm-hmm. There's a theory, there's a theory, an underlying theory that in the engagement, in the adversarial engagement, truth will emerge more often than not see that's kind of interesting but at the close of the day it's the system that matters not the individual things so you don't get to say at the end of the day we're on opposite sides therefore i hate you well what's the system let's define that is is it society is it the government is it the individual what is the system well, it depends where you are and who you're asking. We have a, we have an interesting form of government because we don't we don't pledge allegiance to a king or a queen or a congress or a supreme court, but but we are beholden to the constitution. We're a constitutional republic, right? Yeah, you know, which is a really interesting experiment in governance. We're we're governed by a text, which I would say is very Protestant. You know the Lutheran Church. What? Who? What's? What's? What's the? What's the final rule and judge of things Lutheran? The Lutheran Confessions, a book. We don't have a pope. We have a book. Yeah, we See? do. But well, you know, we a, a written statement of beliefs. Right. And but it has to be interpreted because it's if it's a text, therefore it has to be interpreted. And then the question: Well, is it a living document, or what was the intent of the authors when they wrote it, or what did these words, what did these words and phrases originally mean? It's kind of funny. All the same questions that come up with the Supreme Court come up in theology too, don't they? Whether we're looking at the scriptures or some kind of governing text, say the Lutheran Confessions, because whenever whenever a text rules the day. Then interpretation is the key. How do you interpret it? How do you apply it? Yeah, is it original scripture or is it living scripture? Is it original constitution or a living constitution? That's an interesting right. concept. Or, or, yeah, and, and and does it does it change as society changes? So we do that with the scriptures. You go, oh, that was then, this is now. Okay, so in Paul's day, that flew, but that wouldn't fly today because we're different, we're modern, we're scientific, we're whatever, see? And we're doing the same thing with the Constitution. We say, well, that was then, that was, that was you know, 300 years ago, but today we're more enlightened. We've, we've evolved. We, we think differently. Society is different. And so now it has to change, or some would say, now we have to kind of like bend our understanding to fit the circumstances. But there is a mechanism to change it. Just in my lifetime, I think there's been something like seven, uh, seven new amendments added to the Constitution. Yeah, well, that's because we're treating constitutional law like common law. And you see it coming up with the current discussion with the Supreme Court uh, nominee, because we have another one coming up now. And they want to know, how is this person going to vote on this, this, that issue? Will this person uphold 
Obergfell or or Roe versus Wade or, or you know in other words will will this person honor precedent? But that's a common law way of looking at things. A constitutional law way of looking at this is you look at the case vis a vis the defining documents, the Constitution, its amendments, and and you're you're just playing referee on that case. You're really ruling about the principles of constitutional law. You're not you're not setting. Um, you're not creating a body of common law. That's how we do. That's how we do common law. That's how we do tort law, for example. It evolves. But there's not. Uh, but there's nothing that says that precedent is cast in stone. I can think of, off the top of my head, I can think of several uh, examples right now where the Supreme Court has reversed itself on precedent. Uh, uh, that's right. That's right. Because because they can always look back and say, hmm, that this really doesn't. They're always judging it against what what in theology we would call the norman normans, the norming norm, the document where the buck stops. And in the state, in our, in our government, that's the Constitution. So that's where the buck stops. So even if down the even if in the past you decided something, uh, you can look at that later. And say, ooh, that that's that's not good. That that <laughs> that's not what the Constitution says. And you 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 are free to do that. In fact, I think you're obligated to do that. I think I think they are, and that, that's one of the things that bothers me about the uh, about some of the arguments I'm hearing now is what uh, how how can they how can a person say how they are going to rule on a particular case that's completely hypothetical well that's yeah and that that would be that would i would think that would be judicial malpractice that'd be like asking a doctor to give a diagnosis over the phone yeah. on a patient he's never seen before uh, that, that's ridiculous it's not it's not a an issue by issue it's a case related thing it's about I'll the bet you dollars to donuts the questions are going to come up in the hearings oh yeah of course of course because that's that's where we've that's where we've gone with this but look at the genius behind having a text as the, the the place where the buck stops if it's a person or if it's a body of evolving decisions then you can drift all over the place you're going to experience uh, all sorts of drift because little decisions just eventually kind of go in particular directions and you keep following that precedent way off the main road but if you're always coming back to the the final judge so in our christian terms you always come back to the scriptures where is this you know where is this written what does this mean you always come back there you're always kind of norming your latest idea against the original not against the previous idea you see what i'm saying I think so. I'd like a little bit more clarification on that, Bill. Do you have a clarifying question, or you just want me to keep <laughs> rambling? <laughs> no, well, you know, I, uh, here, look, okay. Here's my here's my illustration. So you go to the you well, go to I'll, the I'll copy. You, I'll give you one. Okay, now I'm I'm going to throw one out here, and okay. I'm and I'm, this is going to be hypothetical. Okay, let's talk creationism. No, 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 no. Okay, go ahead. Okay, go ahead. no, no, good, good. <laughs> well. Yeah. The Bible says six days. I know a lot of Lutherans who question that. So what are we doing there? Is that originalism? Is that are they are they is it a living document? Can they still be Lutherans? Interesting question. And and I think it may be a bit on the rabbit hole side, but let's try it. Okay. And <laughs> okay. then but then I've I've got a simple illustration for what I'm 
saying. All right. But let, let's take yours, for example. So, so the six-day thing. Um, and, and if we follow our principles, and that is go back to the norming norm, to the source. And I, I would add that the confessions don't have anything to say on this topic, so we can skip that one, just go straight back to the original. <laughs> one of the questions we have to ask ourselves is, what does it actually say? Um, are there ways to understand this that are faithful to the literal sense of these words um, and, and I would say in, in, their, in, in the Hebrew, but, but that, are, that are faithful to what the words say, you know, without bending, without reinventing the language, without uh, doing all kinds of, uh, you know, shell games here. But are there ways of reading this uh, that are valid? You, whenever you're looking at a text, you always, that's what a Supreme Court does. It, it's looking at these, these documents and saying, how do we read this? Well, and, and, and you give it various readings. Um, and and then you, you render a decision. Now, maybe the decision is we can't really say. Maybe there are alternative ways of reading it. Let's be originalists, for example. What did an ancient Israelite understand when he read those words or heard them? That's a really important question. In fact, I, I lead people in readings of Genesis where I said, forget you ever heard of Darwin. Forget you ever heard of quantum mechanics and Einstein. Uh, be an ancient Israelite in 1400 BC wandering around the wilderness about to take possession of a pagan land, the land of Canaan, not only filled with milk and honey, but filled with idolatry, nature worship, fertility cults, and you name it. Okay, now with those ears, let's hear the text. And a lot of people will say, hmm, <laughs> because, see, we're bringing the baggage of questions. That text is not even <laughs> answering, see, and that's our problem. So, yeah, I, I, I think we should be originalists, uh, but that's hard. How do you become an ancient Israelite? And how do you become a contemporary of Moses? See, and, and that's, that's part of, the, that's part of that, that skill of biblical hermeneutics. This is not easy work. Well, you know, interesting. Um, I'm just thinking of a of a, a parallel between ancient Israel and the uh, founding of the United States. Uh, as you pointed out, there were uh, there were uh, some natives here, uh, Native Americans, who objected <laughs> strongly to the incoming. Uh, yeah, they had a, they had an immigrant issue. Let's put it yeah. that way. <laughs> they had an issue with that. <laughs> yeah. But you know, what did the Israelites find in in the land of Canaan? Canaanites. Canaanites, yeah. Well, you know, they had a divine mandate to exterminate them. <laughs> By the way, as, as long as we're kind of on that track, okay, let's get this nation uh, business in the Bible straight. There's only one nation that has the that has the imprimatur of God's nation, and that's Israel of the Old Testament. Not Israel today. Not America today, not any nation today, Israel of the Old Testament. So when you read, for example, in Psalm 33, blessed is the nation whose God is Yahweh, that's not a general statement. You know, any nation whose God is Yahweh is blessed. That's not what this says. It's, it's a way of saying blessed uniquely is Israel of the Old Testament. That's the nation whose God is Yahweh. There is no other nation like that. Okay, so just saying on the heels of Fourth of July, let's get that straight. America is not, nor has ever been, that nation. <laughs> well, I thought it was an interesting analogy, even if it gets shot down. Still. Well, let me let me give you my two illustrations. One from the world of carpentry. You want to cut like a bunch of two by fours to the same length. 
Okay, yeah. here's what you don't do. You don't you don't take a piece, cut it, take that piece, measure, cut it, take that piece, measure, cut it, take what will what will happen? It'll eventually get too long or too short depending on how you're biasing it, because you're always measuring against the last one you cut. How do you avoid that? Always measure against the first one. So you cut a piece, that's your reference piece. Now every single piece is measured against that one. They'll all come out the same. Second illustration, copy machine. You don't keep making copies of copies of copies. Good point. Because they degrade. You always go back to the original, see? And so ideas that are derived from ideas that are derived from ideas degrade. You have to go back to the original, the, the source, the, the, the fount and source, you see? So we do that with Scripture. You know, it's nice to hear what the church has said. It's nice to hear what the church fathers say. It's instructive to hear from our teachers, but you got to go back to the source because otherwise you're going to have a drift in theology. And the same thing here uh, in, in the country. That's why constitutional government is such a genius thing. Even though it's difficult, it is subject to interpretation. It is, but it's also, again, looking at it historically, this has been the most stable government really in the history of the world. Uh, hmm, I don't know. You know, nations or civilizations have lasted longer than this one. That's true. I, we're still I, didn't kinda, say, we're st I didn't say civilization. I said government. We're still in the wet behind the ears phase. And I'm a little fearful because the high principles on which we were founded seem to have degraded considerably, <laughs> especially in the last, what, 50 years or so? Something so I, like that. I'm, I'm not at this point optimistic. I'm kind of pessimistic about... By the way, the, the founding fathers thought this that... The government that they established with the Constitution and the Declaration would last about 50 years. Okay. They were convinced that it was going to devolve into a monarchy again. They were convinced of that. And they were interestingly wrong in that respect. Well, I think an argument can be made that at several times in our history, we came very, very close to it. Uh, look, we, we may be there again. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, you know, I look back, uh, you know, my parents idolized FDR. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And Roosevelt essentially was, he was coming very, very close to ruling by decree. Yeah. We've, we've had that. We've had that in the past. And, and I think the separation of powers was one of the most genius ideas mm -hmm. where you, you kind of isolate judicial, legislative, executive power. That's, that's a recognition that sinful man with power is going to do bad stuff. So just kind of like parcel out the power. It 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 minimizes damage. It it doesn't prevent it, but it minimizes it. It does, and I think also the recognition. Um, uh, I'm going to. It's really isn't true when I look at it, but I'll say it anyway. Uh, the idea being that we rejected the concept of aristocracy, or at least inherited aristocracy, although. Although. We did we did have kind of a bicameral Congress because the House of Representatives was the rabble. Yeah. And and the Senate was like the House of Lords. That was more the ruling aristocracy. So it was kind of a both and which well, by the way, Lutherans kinda of like those both and solutions. Yeah, well to to an extent. I mean the, the I, originally the senators were elected by the state legislatures. Right. Yep. But see they didn't trust they didn't trust raw democracy. They had an electoral college for that reason oh, yeah. too. They didn't trust raw democracy. That was just mob rule. That was the tyranny of the majority. Yeah, it's it's two wolves and a sheep deciding what voting on what to have for dinner. I remember I remember uh what one of my teachers at the seminary used to say about bishops. He says you can always get rid of a bad bishop. 
You know, you can depose them, you can poison them, you can do all kinds of things. He said, it's impossible to get rid of a mistaken majority. (laughs) (laughs) I like that. There's no, but there's no greater tyrant than the majority. I mean, how often do we like raise our fists in triumph when we're on the winning side, the 51% side? Majority rules! You know, we, we like that one. As long as we're in the 51%. Right. And then there's the Electoral College. So. And, and what is it about the majority that makes it de facto right? One of the best lessons I ever had in, in, in grade school uh, was that we, had, there was a, we were being taught a, a, something in grammar. I don't recall exactly what it was, but I remember the uh, teacher asking the students to take a vote on which was correct. And we did, and she said, you're wrong. (laughs) (laughs) Bill, we're out of time, darn it. I want to continue. Hey, great porch time. Oh, fudge. I've been having fun here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little too much. (laughs) I know, I know. I'm hanging my head in shame, darn it. (laughs) You've been listening to Let's Talk. The pastor is in. Today's guest was Bill Swirla of Holy Trinity Lutheran Church in Hacienda Heights. I want to give special thanks to Pastor Emeritus Fritz Bowie for letting us use his recording of All Glory, Laud, and Honor as the theme song for Let's Talk. The pastor is in. Pastor Bowie's music and books are available at Amazon.com. I'm program host Kip Allen wishing you God's blessings. You've been listening to The Pastor is In. A weekly chance to chat with a pastor. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. You can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting. The Pastor is in on Worldwide KFUO.